Ugh, this stupid group text. It's so annoying. Ugh, come on. Nobody cares if you went to the gym this morning. Stop! Well, good morning and welcome to Northridge Church, man. We're excited to have you here this morning. Whether you're joining us from one of our four campuses, you're with us online, or you're a guest just taking a slice of your weekend and checking out Northridge Church, man, we're excited and honored to have you here this morning. And we're diving in, we're kicking off a brand new series called Triggered, and we're talking about conflict. We've all experienced conflict in our lives. We've all had those moments where we're driving down the road and someone cuts us off, moments where our teenagers talk back to us, moments where our boss tells us we're not doing a good job when we thought we were killing it, those moments in life where conflict arises. And how we handle those moments often says a lot of really about us. And, and it's true, like we've all been there where we face conflict and we've blown it. We've said things to people we love that we didn't mean to. And for a lot of us, we've seen the result of how, how we handle bad conflict and it affecting our relationships. And in this series, for the next three weeks, we're going to be talking about how we handle conflict, how we respond to it, how we approach it from a biblical sense, from God's way. And I don't know about you, but conflict in my life seems to arise really for two specific reasons. The first one is I don't like to be hot. Anybody with me? You just don't like to be hot. And, you know, I'm not talking about like the sun, like sun tanning hot. I don't mind that kind. I'm talking about like it's winter time and, you know, it's cold outside and you go to your car and you put your winter jacket on. And, you know, my wife is naturally cold and I'm naturally hot. And so, you know, you get in your car and you start it up, you, you know, get the heat going and you got your coat on, you put your safety belt on and you look over to your wife who is naturally cold and she's not wearing a coat and you're driving down the road and she's got the temperature gauge at like a thousand degrees and I start sweating and I, I'm like I can't take my coat off like I'm driving and I become angry anybody with me you know I don't like to be hot okay the other time is I don't like to be hot but I also don't like to be hungry anybody with me on that I become a different person when I'm hungry. They call it hangry usually, you know, like, hey, I would be perfect for the Snickers bars commercial. Like, hey, Drew, eat a Snickers. You'll be better, I promise. And I, I just get, those are triggers in my life that cause me to deal with conflict. And this morning we're going to be talking about that. We're going to be engaging with the topic of conflict. And there's a couple things that we have to understand. The first one is the obvious. In relationships, there will be conflict and you can't avoid it. I mean, that's the reality of life, the life that we live for every single person. If you're in relationships, whether it's family relationships, uh, marriage relationships, whether it's coworker relationships, boss relationships, in life, if you're in relationships, there's going to be conflict. And it doesn't matter how hard you try to pretend it's not there, sweep it under the rug, avoid it at all costs, it's going to be there. And I know for some of you that's terrible news because you can't stand conflict. You hate it. You avoid it at all costs. And the good news this morning is if you're here and you're like, I'm done with conflict. I don't want to deal with it anymore. I have a solution for you. Some of you are like, wait, what? My, the answer to my prayers are actually about to just happen. 
There is a way where you don't have to deal with conflict anymore. I'm going to give it to you right now. I'm going to give you your first application step. You see, if you don't want to deal with conflict anymore, here's what you need to do. At the end of the service, I want you to get in your car. And I want you to go to Home Depot or to Lowe's. You're like, where is this going? What is happening in church this morning? I want you to go to Home Depot or Lowe's, and I want you to buy. They make these really nice steel shovels, okay? No, you're not going to hit anybody with this, okay? You're going to buy one of these steel shovels, and you're going to go in your backyard, and you're going to dig a giant hole, and you're going to live in it. And you're not going to talk to anybody ever again. And you won't have conflict, Actually, you probably wouldn't work because you'd probably have conflict with yourself for making that dumb decision. But that's the reality is like, hey, in relationships, no matter how hard you try, all the effort you put in, conflict's going to be there. And the truth about conflict is really conflict isn't a bad thing. It's how we handle it. And how we handle conflict says a lot about me as a person, who I am, and whose we are. You see, conflict really exposes us. I think that's why we don't like it, is it exposes who I truly am. It exposes my character. It exposes the things in me that I don't like about me. It also exposes, maybe even more importantly, whose I am. Because I really believe this. As we jump into this series on conflict, as a Christian, as someone who claims the name of Jesus, who's made him the forgiver of our sins and the leader of our life, people who, who say, hey, man, I'm a Christ follower, I'm a disciple, I believe this, that when we approach conflict and, and how we handle conflict should look a lot different than culture. I believe this today, that, that as Christians, we should handle and navigate and approach and respond to the conflict in our lives different than the world does. It should set us apart, and conflict exposes us. It exposes the character that's living inside of me, and it also exposes who I trust in and who I follow. But the truth about conflict is we believe it's the enemy. That's why we avoid it. But do you realize that conflict in your relationships can be a healthy, life-giving thing? It actually can strengthen your relationships, but most of us, we don't want to deal with it because we believe conflict is the enemy. But the truth is today, something that we have to understand is conflict doesn't destroy relationships. Our response to it does. Our response to it. You see, the onus is really on us and how we approach and how we respond to conflict. And for the next three weeks, that's what we're going to be talking about, a topic that we all need because we all deal with conflict. So if you have your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 4 is where we're going to be. Ephesians chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to use one of ours. It's going to be on page 948 in the Bible that we provide. Ephesians chapter 4. This is where we're going to be for the next three weeks. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4. So if you want to get a jump head start, I know you're reading a lot in sacred rhythms. I hope you're still staying in those rhythms of reading God's word, but you can read Ephesians 4, just add it to the list of things to read because we're going to be here for the next three weeks. And just to give you some context of this book, you see, it's written by one of the most well-known early Christian leaders. His name is Paul. He wrote a good chunk of the New Testament. And in Ephesians chapter 4, he's, he's writing to a, a church in Ephesus. And in chapters 1 through 3, he kind of begins to define the calling that God has placed on every Christian. I mean, he's defining our calling as Christians. In chapters 1 through 3, that's what he spends the majority of his time, defining that calling. 
And then in chapter four, he makes a a shift where he steps out of defining the calling and he says, hey, here's how you step into that calling. Here's how you live in that calling from a practical standpoint. And he begins in in verse one of chapter four, he says this, he says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Again, here's his transition statement. He's saying, hey, you know the calling I just defined in the first three chapters? I'm urging you now to live in that calling, to live in a a life worthy of that calling. And so here's what he says, verse two, he says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of spirit through the bond of peace. And what he does is he makes this shift. He really gives us two major topics that he talks about in this passage. The first one is maturity. And the second one is unity. You think two things that we desperately need when it comes to dealing with conflict. Hey, we need to be mature in growing in our knowledge of God's word. We need maturity as Christians, but we also need to hold fast to unity. And he gives us his thesis statement in verse three. He says this, he says, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. And so Paul starts, he says, in your relationships, we have to learn, we have to understand that as Christians, we should put all of our energy, we should make every effort, all our passion and our time and our energy should go to holding to unity holding on to unity, everything we do in our relationships, with family and friends, in our businesses and in our neighborhoods and with our marriages, everything we do, we should put all our energy, Paul says, in keeping unity. Now I think we have to define unity because I think we have a flawed definition of what unity is. Because I think for some of us, we think unity is everybody agrees and everybody goes the same direction. Like we all, every opinion matches and we all agree and we think unity is uniformity, and that's not the case at all. Unity is is when we can know our differences, have our disagreements, but all still go the same direction. That's what unity is, it's not uniformity, it's knowing our differences and heading the same direction. And here's what Paul is saying, he's saying, hey, as Christians, we should chase after unity. And here's the problem, here's where conflict comes in. Because I don't know about you, but this is just true in my life, is most of my effort isn't going after unity. Most of my effort is trying to prove the person I'm arguing with wrong. I mean, can anybody relate to that? I mean, most of my energy is like, hey, I'm just going to prove that your opinion is stupid and my way is much better than your way. I just ask my wife, she'll agree with that statement. I mean, that's what we, that's what we do in, in, in arguments and in conflict. We don't spend time trying to hold fast to unity. We spend all of our energy trying to make a point in the argument and actually win the argument. And this is what Paul is saying to, to all of us. He's saying making peace is so much greater than making a point. Making peace in your relationship, sharing in unity is so much more valuable and significant than getting your point across in, in your relationships and in your conflict. But then I ask myself the question, why in the world do I spend so much time trying to make a point? I mean, isn't that what an argument is about? It's about getting your point across to the other person. And Paul says, we're missing it. If that's how you do conflict, you're missing it. Because he says your energy should not go to making a point. It should go to keeping unity. But I don't know about you, but for me, I like to be right. 
mean, I just like to know that I'm, I'm, I'm smarter than the other person. I like to know that my way is, is right and their way is wrong. And here's the result of that. That's how most of us live in arguments is we want to be right. And that's why we are in the argument because we think we're right. And here's what happens because of that. It says our pursuit of being right often overlooks what's truly important. And I love the, the, Paul, the shift Paul makes our, our heads wrap around is really what Paul does is he puts the value on the relationship rather than the argument. That's what he does. He shifts our thinking because in, in our conflicts, we get so blinded by our own pride, which says we're right, that we often get so consumed of winning the argument at the cost of the relationship. The more I try to be right, usually the more my relationship suffers, the more it costs me in the end. And Paul, he, he, he takes a shift for us and he says, we have to understand in all conflict, usually in most cases, if not all cases, your relationship with that person is way more valuable than actually proving them wrong. But yeah, we don't live that way. We miss that. And here's why. Because when we're in, in, in an argument, we're in a fight, we have conflict. We think that the problem lies with that other person. Like the greatest problem in my conflict deals with that other person, but that's not usually the reality. The reality usually is the greatest problem in all of our conflicts lies with ourselves. Because we get so blinded by our pride in, in this pursuit of making a point, this pursuit of being right, that we end up getting in the way of the unity that we should be chasing after. And this is what Philippians says about this. This is how we should live out in our conflicts. Philippians chapter 2, it says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, we're going to talk about that word later, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. I mean, could you imagine what our arguments would look like if we lived this verse out? Where instead of thinking about what you think is right, instead of putting your own interest above everybody else's, you actually did it backwards and you said, hey, I'm gonna put your interests. I'm not gonna do anything out of selfish ambition. I'm not worried about getting my way. I'm gonna chase unity. That's what it looks like. I mean, Philippians just gives us an example of what it looks like to put all our effort into chasing unity. It's when we get out of the way, our opinions, our pursuit of being right, and we put everybody else's needs in front of our own. And really, Paul is getting at a bigger question, and I think it's a question that we have to answer in the midst of conflict, and it's this. Am I fighting to be right, or am I fighting for the relationship? Am I fighting to prove a point? Am I fighting to know that I'm right, or am I fighting for the relationship? Now, I want you to hear me clearly, because there's sometimes in conflict where you need to stand up for truth. You are right, you stand on God's word, and God's word is right, and there's times in life, in conflict, that you have to stand up for what is right, not your pursuit of being right. You see, there's a big difference there. When you stand up for truth, not standing up for that, the fact that you are truth. And so we have to understand, hey, I gotta fight for the relationships because that's where the value is. And what's interesting is Paul gives this thesis statement in the very verse before that, he shows us how to do that. He shows us in our conflict that we have to choose some character, tra character traits to live out so we can chase after unity. Look what he says in verse 2. He says this. He says, be completely humble and gentle. Here's that word again. To be humble. 
to live in humility. I believe this is, if not the hardest, one of the hardest character traits to live out in our lives. Humility. To be a person who humbles themselves. Because here's what Paul is telling us to do. He's telling us to do something that isn't natural to us. Because for all of us, I don't care who you are today, our natural response is pride. Our natural response is to think about me, myself, and, and, and me, myself, and I. Like, I think about my feelings, and I think about my intentions, and I think about my opinion more than I think about anybody else's. That's natural. For all of us, that is what comes natural to us, is to think about me. And what Paul is saying is he's saying, hey, you got to understand, to live in humility is actually, here's what he's telling you to do. He's saying, you know, if you're a right-hand, right-handed, he's telling you to throw left-handed. And if you're a left-hander, he's telling you to throw right-handed. That's how awkward it is to do what he's asking us to do. I mean, if you saw me throw a football with my left hand, you would laugh at me. You'd probably make fun of me because that's not my natural hand. And Paul is telling us, hey, when we live in humility, we actually go against what's natural to us, what comes easy to us. We turn our back on it and we go against what feels weird and what's awkward. Our humility should trump our pride every day. Our humility should step on, should squeeze, should push out our pride. But yet how many of us live in that realm? How many of us live in humility every single day? And we don't have to look any farther than Jesus. I mean, he sets that example for us. One of the greatest things about Jesus, one of the most beautiful character traits in his life was humility. He gave us a perfect example of this. And in fact, Philippians 2 talks about this. It says, in your relationships with one another, in all your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. He is your example. Look to him. It says, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And right here, I'm not even sure we understand the full capacity of what that verse is saying. But it's saying Jesus, our example, he shows us what humility looks like because he was fully God. He was all-knowing and all-powerful, but yet in him being fully God, he didn't use that God card to his own advantage. It says, rather, he made himself nothing. I mean, God went from everything. Jesus went from everything. He skipped something and went to nothing. But how amazing is that? We spend the majority of our time trying to be something, and God went the opposite direction and became nothing. And that's what humility looks like. It's when you're okay not in the spotlight. It's when you're okay putting somebody else before you. And Paul says, in order for us to achieve unity and to hold fast to unity, we've got to learn humility. We've got to step into what feels awkward and what's not natural to us. But he continues. He says, be completely humble and gentle. And then he says, be patient. To be patient, and the flow is, I think, very strategic. He says, if you learn humility, it leads you to a place where you can be patient. Maybe the second hardest character trait to live out is patience, because we live in a culture that has none. I mean, we do not like to wait. I mean, we, we go to a restaurant after church, and, and it's 15 minutes before our food comes out. We're like, hey, this took forever. Can you give me a free dessert? 
I mean, because we don't like to wait. Like, if we wait, we deserve something for it, don't we? We don't like to wait in the doctor's office. We don't like to sit in traffic. We do not like to wait. You want to know why? Because we don't like patience. And patience is something, Paul says, we need to learn, to learn patience. And what does that look like in a relationship? I mean, patience isn't a word you would use to say, hey, you need patience in a relationship. What does that look like? I think it's tied to another word a word called grace. You see, patience in relationship is when someone messes up, you don't jump on them immediately. You don't hold them accountable like, hey, you need to say sorry. You see, I think for a lot of us, we are so easily offended. For a lot of us, we're, we're, the moment someone makes a mistake in our office or the moment someone hurts our feelings, we immediately pounce on them and we say, hey, how dare you do that to me? And you should apologize and you should pay for that. And that's how we live in our culture today. That's how we live. If someone hurts us, someone offends us, we believe they should pay and we don't want to wait on that payment. We want it now. And patience in a relationship is when you give somebody grace, when they hurt you, when they make a mistake, you say, hey, it's all right. I know you didn't mean to do that. Like, hey, I'll be patient with you. I mean, have you ever been there before? Were you the one who made the mistake and someone gave you grace? Where they said, hey, it's not that big of a deal. Do you know what that feels like? And that's what Paul is talking about. He's saying, if we want to hold fast to unity, we've got to learn that when people, people are going to hurt us, people are going to offend us, to not be so offended. There's a book written by Derwin Gray. And he says, when you understand the grace of God, grace is not easily offended. Because you recognize that God gives it to you freely all the time. Can you imagine? God set that example. How many days do I wake up and I'm like, God, I'm in need of your grace today. Will you be patient with me? I mean, how patient has God been with all of us? Paul says we got to learn patience. And then lastly, he continues. He says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. And I love where he ends because I love that term bearing. And I love the Bible because it doesn't set unrealistic expectations. It doesn't sugarcoat anything for you. He, Paul says, hey, there's going to be times in relationships where you got to bear with some people. You know what I'm talking about? Like you just got to hold the weight up. You got to bear with them. You got to work it through with them. And here's why you can do that. There's some people in your life right now that you're bearing with. They're part of your family. They're in your office. They're people who you love. And that's the reason why we can bear with one another, Paul says, is because of love. Because of love. But here's the problem. We, we have no clue what love is. I mean, Paul ultimately defines it. I don't know if he did it accidentally or on purpose. My guess would be on purpose. But he defines what love is for us. Because what's wrong with a lot of our relationships and the conflict that happens is because we don't get love. I mean, we use it and abuse the word like, hey, man, I love you. And hey, baby, I love you. But the moment the feeling of love goes and there's conflict, so does the relationship. And unfortunately, that's not what love is. You see, love is a choice. It's a commitment. It's to say, hey, when you offend me, when there's conflict, I'm not bailing on you, but I'll bear with you. I'll walk with you. I love you enough to stay committed to you even when you're not at your best. That's what love is. But yet in our culture, and in, in, in really in, in our world today, we just throw the term out, but we have no clue what it means. And that's why when conflict comes, a lot of marriages fall apart, a lot of relationships fall apart, friendships and families fall apart because we have no clue what love is. And Paul says, you can bear with people because you understand what love is. And he really is saying, hey, in, in conflict, we have to learn to fight for each other, not against each other. 
We have to learn to fight for each other and to fight with each other, not against each other. And man, one thing that my wife and I have learned, I know a lot of times we, we think that the pastor has it all together and, and this isn't for him, but let me just clear the air. Like this message is not for y'all, it's for me. Because in my marriage and in my, with my relationship with my kids and my family, I deal with conflict a lot. And one thing that I've learned in, in, in my marriage is when my wife and I, we fight over like the shower curtain or like the toilet seat or, or things that, you know, the food we're eating, you know, sometimes the enemy just uses dumb things like that to, to, to do a lot of damage. And when we fight about stupid things like that, one thing that my wife often says to me and one thing that I say to her is, as I just look her in the eyes or she looks me in the eyes and she says, Drew, I'm not your enemy. I'm not your enemy. Sometimes I look her in the eyes, baby, I'm not your enemy. And just that phrase reminds us that the true enemy wants to make us think that the person we're arguing with is actually our enemy. He does that in our families. He does that in, in, in our offices. He does that in our neighborhoods. He does it with the, our teacher at work. He does that in our marriages where he convinces that that person is the enemy. And sometimes just slowing down and realizing what you're fighting over and who you're fighting with might change the game for you. Because conflict is a reality. In fact, for some of you this morning, it's not a tomorrow reality, it's a today reality. Some of you had conflict on your way to church this morning. Some of you have been dealing with conflict for the last six months to a year to five years because you haven't spoken with someone in your family some of you are dealing with conflict with your teenagers. It doesn't matter what you say, it just leads to conflict. Some of you as teenagers or, or kids in college, you can't talk to your parents because you don't think they understand you and no matter what happens, it just leads to conflict. Some of you in your marriage, you're dealing with conflict and it doesn't matter what you talk about, it never ends up in the right place and you're kind of desperate and you're like, I don't know what to do at this point. And I think when we deal with that word conflict, when it arises and when we engage with it, and when we, when we, how we handle it, I think we have to come to this question. I think this question will save us a lot of times. Is, is what you're fighting over worth what it might cost you? Is what you're fighting over worth what it might cost you? You know, in my line of work, over a decade of ministry, I have seen... Businesses destroyed, families ruined, marriages broken over the dumbest of things, over stupid things. But what happens is we fail to realize in the moment, in the argument of what we might lose because we're so blinded by our pride and being right. And I would ask you this morning, if you're dealing with conflict or if you in the future are going to deal with conflict, you might want to ask yourself the question, hey, with the person I'm fighting with, whether it's my family, whether it's a, a friendship, whatever it is, is this fight really worth what it could cost me? Because I have seen friends ruined. I have seen families destroyed, businesses broken, reputations ruined, positions lost, community groups destroyed, and marriages broken over that word conflict. Because it's a reality. And Paul says to us, he says, we have to learn humility 
patience and learn to bear with each other in love, ultimately so it leads us to a place that with all our energy and all of our passion, we hold fast to unity. See, I would be amiss though as we look at conflict to not look at the greater picture. Because for every single one of us, every single one of us, it doesn't matter who you are today, we've all dealt with relational conflict And more importantly, in the bigger picture, our greatest conflict was and is with our sin. That's the reality of of, of the greatest relationship you will ever interact with. The greatest conflict that you will deal with on this earth has to do and was and is with your sin. Because your sin, all the way from the beginning, Adam and Eve choosing to disobey God, we're all sinful in nature. And because of our disobedience to God, here's what it did. It created a break in our relationship with the holy God. A holy and perfect God cannot interact with a sinful guy like me. And it didn't matter how hard I tried or how hard we tried to fix the relationship issue, there was nothing we can do. We can't be good enough. We can't say sorry enough. The damage is done. And so God in his holiness can't have a relationship with me or you because I'm a sinner. I've walked away from God. But yet Jesus, who did nothing wrong, who wasn't a part of the conflict, stepped in and redeemed and restored our relationship with God. That's the gospel. It's that that I was a sinner and my choice separated me from God, but yet God stepped in and paid a penalty that I couldn't pay and he restored that relationship. And that is the example that we follow. Look what it says in Philippians. It says, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so Jesus, who did nothing wrong, went to the cross to pay an answer for my conflict, your conflict, and his blood that was shed and his body that was broken for us, redeemed it so we can have a relationship with the loving God. Man, maybe you're here this morning and and, and you don't know the love of Jesus. I just urge you and challenge you that he's gracious. He's forgiving. He will forgive every mistake that you have made and every mistake that you will make. And he will give you a fresh start. And it's simply just placing your faith and your trust in him and saying, God, I I am a sinner. I've messed up and, and I need you. I need you to forgive me and I need you to lead my life. I'm submitting to you today. It's that simple, following Jesus. But this morning, we're gonna remember that. We're gonna remember it through something called communion. The Bible says to do this in remembrance of me. It's when we remember the sacrifice that Jesus paid to fix, to restore, to redeem our conflict. And the Bible says that that communion is for Christ followers, people who have made that decision to place their faith in Jesus Christ. And as we remember the Savior, I want you to know something about the the Bible. When, When it comes to taking communion, This is how serious God takes relational conflict. He says, if you have, in Corinthians, he says, if you have relational conflict with another believer, you shouldn't take part in communion. That's how serious he takes it. He says, you should restore the relationship before you take part in communion. That's how serious he takes it. 
And so this morning, we're just going to remember Jesus' sacrifice for us. And I want to give you a chance just to reflect on your life, to examine on the inside of the sin that's there that maybe you just need to remove. To examine on your relationships and the conflicts in your life and say, maybe I need to ask for forgiveness. Maybe I need to call somebody today and to work things out before I take place in communion. I don't know what it is for you. This is your time to just reflect on that. Because when we had our greatest conflict, Jesus, our example, he humbled himself, he was patient with us, and he bore our sins on the cross. So this morning, we remember that. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for your love. Thank you that in the midst of us not being able to do anything, you stepped in and you paid our penalty. And God, I just pray this morning for that person who they want you, they just, they're not sure. Maybe not all their questions are answered. God, I pray that you would speak to them, that you would let them know that you're a loving, gracious, forgiving, but also just and true God. And that they would cross that line today, not tomorrow, but today, they would cross that line to say, God, I need you in my life. Would you forgive me? And would you lead me today? And God, as we remember your sacrifice, may it be more than just taking a cracker and the juice and eating it, but may we live our lives in remembrance of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.